Book Seventeen, Chapters One through Four of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Seventeen, Chapter One. By the favor of God we have treated distinctly of his promises made to Abraham, that both the nation of Israel according to the flesh, and all nations according to faith, should be his seed, and the city of God, proceeding according to the order of time, will point out how they were fulfilled. Having therefore in the previous book come down to the reign of David, we shall now treat of what remains, so far as may seem sufficient for the object of this work, beginning at the same reign. Now from the time when holy Samuel began to prophesy, and ever onward until the people of Israel was led captive into Babylonia, and until, according to the prophecy of the holy Jeremiah, on Israel's return thence after seventy years, the house of God was built anew, this whole period is the prophetic age. For although both the patriarch Noah himself, in whose days the whole earth was destroyed by the flood, and others before and after him down to this time, when there began to be kings over the people of God, may not undeservedly be styled prophets, on account of certain things pertaining to the city of God and the kingdom of heaven, which they either predicted or in any way signified should come to pass, and especially since we read that some of them, as Abraham and Moses, were expressly so styled, yet those are most and chiefly called the days of the prophets, from the time when Samuel began to prophesy, who at God's command first anointed Saul to be king, and on his rejection David himself, whom others of his issue should succeed as long as it was fitting they should do so. If, therefore, I wish to rehearse all that the prophets have predicted concerning Christ, while the city of God, with its members dying and being born in constant succession, ran its course through those times, this work would extend beyond all bounds. First, because the scripture itself, even when, in treating an order of the kings and of their deeds and the events of their reigns, it seems to be occupied in narrating as with historical diligence the affairs transacted, will be found, if the things handled by it are considered with the aid of the Spirit of God, either more or certainly not less intent on foretelling things to come than on relating things past and who that thinks even a little about it does not know how laborious and prolix a work it would be and how many volumes it would require to search this out by thorough investigation and demonstrate it by argument and then, because of that which without dispute pertains to prophecy, there are so many things concerning Christ and the kingdom of heaven, which is the city of God, that to explain these a larger discussion would be necessary than the due proportion of this work admits of. Therefore I shall, if I can, so limit myself, that in carrying through this work I may, with God's help, neither say what is superfluous, nor omit what is necessary. CHAPTER Two. In the preceding book we said that in the promise of God to Abraham two things were promised from the beginning, the one, namely, that his seed should possess the land of Canaan, which was intimated when it was said, Go into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. But the other far more excellent, concerning not the carnal, but the spiritual seed, by which he is the father, not of the one nation of Israel, but of all nations who follow the footsteps of his faith, which began to be promised in these words, 
and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And thereafter we showed by yet many other proofs that these two things were promised. Therefore the seed of Abraham, that is, the people of Israel according to the flesh, already was in the land of promise, and there, not only by holding and possessing the cities of the enemies, but also by having kings, had already begun to reign, the promises of God concerning that people being already in great part fulfilled. Not only those that were made to those three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and whatever others were made in their times, but those also that were made through Moses himself, by whom the same people was set free from servitude in Egypt, and by whom all bygone things were revealed in his times, when he led the people through the wilderness. But neither by the illustrious leader Jesus, the son of Nun, who led that people into the land of promise, and, after driving out the nations, divided it among the twelve tribes according to God's command, and died, nor after him in the whole time of the judges was the promise of God concerning the land of Canaan fulfilled, that it should extend from some river of Egypt even to the great river Euphrates. Nor yet was it still prophesied as to come, but its fulfillment was expected." and it was fulfilled through David and Solomon his son, whose kingdom was extended over the whole promised space, for they subdued all those nations, and made them tributary. And thus under those kings the seed of Abraham was established in the land of promise according to the flesh, that is, in the land of Canaan, so that nothing yet remained to the complete fulfillment of that earthly promise of God, except that, so far as pertains to temporal prosperity, the Hebrew nation should remain in the same land by the succession of posterity, in an unshaken state, even to the end of this mortal age, if it obeyed the laws of the Lord its God. But since God knew it would not do this, he used his temporal punishments also for training his few faithful ones in it, and for giving needful warning to those who should afterwards be in all nations, in whom the other promise revealed in the New Testament was about to be fulfilled through the incarnation of Christ. CHAPTER three. Wherefore, just as that divine oracle to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other prophetic signs or sayings which are given in the earlier sacred writings, so also the other prophecies from this time of the kings pertain partly to the nation of Abraham's flesh, and partly to that seed of his in which all nations are blessed, as fellow heirs of Christ by the New Testament, to the possessing of eternal life and the kingdom of the heavens. Therefore they pertain partly to the bondmaid who gendereth the bondage, that is, the earthly Jerusalem, which is in bondage with her children, but partly to the free city of God, that is, the true Jerusalem eternal in the heavens, whose children are all those that live according to God in the earth. But there are some things among them which are understood to pertain to both, to the bondmaid properly, to the free woman figuratively. Therefore prophetic utterances of three kinds are to be found, forasmuch as there are some relating to the earthly Jerusalem, some to the heavenly, and some to both. I think it proper to prove what I say by examples. The prophet Nathan was sent to convict King David of heinous sin, and predict to him what future evils should be consequent on it. Who can question that this and the like pertain to the terrestrial city, whether publicly, that is, for the safety or help of the people, or privately, when there are given forth for each one's private good divine utterances, whereby something of the future may be known for the use of temporal life? 
but where we read, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make for the house of Israel, and for the house of Judah, a new testament, not according to the testament that I settled for their fathers, in the day when I laid hold of their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my testament, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the testament that I will make for the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will give my laws in their mind, and will write them upon their hearts, and I will see to them, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Without doubt this is prophesied to the Jerusalem above, whose reward is God himself, and whose chief and entire good it is to have him, and to be his. But this pertains to both, that the city of God is called Jerusalem, and that it is prophesied the house of God shall be in it. And this prophecy seems to be fulfilled when King Solomon builds that most noble temple. For these things both happened in the earthly Jerusalem, as history shows, and were types of the heavenly Jerusalem. And this kind of prophecy, as it were compacted and commingled, of both the others in the ancient canonical books, containing historical narratives, is of very great significance, and has exercised, and exercises greatly, the wits of those who search holy writ. For example, what we read of historically as predicted and fulfilled in the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, we must also inquire the allegorical meaning of, as it is to be fulfilled in the seed of Abraham according to faith. And so much is this the case, that some have thought there is nothing in these books either foretold and effected, or effected although not foretold, that does not insinuate something else which is to be referred by figurative signification to the city of God on high, and to her children who are pilgrims in this life. But if this be so, then the utterances of the prophets, or rather the whole of those scriptures that are reckoned under the title of the Old Testament, will be not of three, but of two different kinds. For there will be nothing there which pertains to the terrestrial Jerusalem only, if whatever is there said and fulfilled of or concerning her, signifies something which also refers by allegorical prefiguration to the celestial Jerusalem. But there will be only two kinds, one that pertains to the free Jerusalem, the other to both. But just as, I think, they err greatly who are of opinion that none of the records of affairs in that kind of writings mean anything more than that they so happened, so I think those very daring who contend that the whole gist of their contents lies in allegorical significations. Therefore, I have said, they are threefold, not twofold. Yet, in holding this opinion, I do not blame those who may be able to draw out of everything there a spiritual meaning, only saving, first of all, the historical truth. For the rest, what believer can doubt that those things are spoken vainly, which are such that whether said to have been done, or to be yet to come, they do not beseem either human or divine affairs? Who would not recall these to spiritual understanding if he could, or confess that they should be recalled by him who is able? Chapter 4. Therefore the advance of the city of God, where it reached the times of the kings, yielded a figure, when, on the rejection of Saul, David first obtained the kingdom on such a footing, that thenceforth his descendants should reign in the earthly Jerusalem in continual succession. For the course of affairs signified and foretold, what is not to be passed by in silence, concerning the change of things to come, what belongs to both testaments, the old and the new, where the priesthood and kingdom are changed by one who is a priest, and at the same time a king, new and everlasting, even Christ Jesus. 
for both the substitution and the ministry of God, on Eli's rejection as priest, of Samuel, who executed at once the office of priest and judge, and the establishment of David in the kingdom, when Saul was rejected, typified this of which I speak. And Hannah herself, the mother of Samuel, who formerly was barren, and afterwards was gladdened with fertility, does not seem to prophesy anything else, when she exultingly pours forth her thanksgiving to the Lord, on yielding up to God the same boy she had borne and weaned, with the same piety with which she had vowed him. For she says, My heart is made strong in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in my God. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies. I am made glad in thy salvation. Because there is none holy as the Lord, and none as righteous as our God. There is none holy save thee. Do not glory so proudly, and do not speak lofty things, neither let vaunting talk come out of your mouth. For a God of knowledge is the Lord, and a God preparing his curious designs. The bow of the mighty hath he made weak, and the weak are girded with strength. They that were full of bread are diminished, and the hungry have passed beyond the earth. For the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth, and maketh alive. He bringeth down to hell, and bringeth up again. The Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. He bringeth low, and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill, that he may set him among the mighty of his people, and maketh them inherit the throne of glory, giving the vow to him that voweth, and he hath blessed the years of the just. For man is not mighty in strength. The Lord shall make his adversary weak, the Lord is holy. Let not the prudent glory in his prudence, and let not the mighty glory in his might, and let not the rich glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, to understand and know the Lord, and to do judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. The Lord hath ascended into the heavens, and hath thundered. He shall judge the ends of the earth, for he is righteous, and he giveth strength to our kings, and shall exalt the horn of his Christ. Do you say that these are the words of a single weak woman giving thanks for the birth of a son? Can the mind of men be so much averse to the light of truth as not to perceive that the sayings this woman pours forth exceed her measure? Moreover, he who is suitably interested in these things, which have already begun to be fulfilled even in this earthly pilgrimage also, does he not apply his mind, and perceive and acknowledge, that through this woman, whose very name, which is Hannah, means his grace, the very Christian religion, the very city of God, whose king and founder is Christ, in fine the very grace of God, hath thus spoken by the prophetic spirit, whereby the proud are cut off so that they fall, and the humble are filled so that they rise which that hymn chiefly celebrates. Unless perchance any one will say that this woman prophesied nothing, but only lauded God with exulting praise on account of the Son, whom she had obtained an answer to prayer. What then does she mean when she says, The bow of the mighty hath he made weak, and the weak are guarded with strength, they that were full of bread are diminished, and the hungry have gone beyond the earth, for the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Had she herself borne seven, although she had been barren? She had only one when she said that, neither did she bear seven afterwards, nor six, with whom Samuel himself might be the seventh, but three males and two females. And then, when as yet no one was king over that people, whence, if she did not prophesy, did she say what she puts at the end, He giveth strength to our kings, and shall exalt the horn of his Christ.' 
Therefore let the church of Christ, the city of the great king, full of grace, prolific of offspring, let her say what the prophecy uttered about her so long before by the mouth of this pious mother confesses, My heart is made strong in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in my God. Her heart is truly made strong, and her horn is truly exalted, because not in herself, but in the Lord her God. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because even in pressing straits the word of God is not bound, not even in preachers who are bound. I am made glad, she says, in thy salvation. This is Christ Jesus himself, whom old Simeon, as we read in the gospel, embracing as a little one, yet recognizing as great, said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Therefore may the church say, I am made glad in thy salvation, for there is none holy as the Lord, and none is righteous as our God, as holy and sanctifying, just and justifying. There is none holy beside thee, because no one becomes so except by reason of thee. And then it follows, Do not glory so proudly, and do not speak lofty things, neither let vaunting talk come out of your mouth, for a God of knowledge is the Lord. He knows you even when no one knows. For he who thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, deceiveth himself. These things are said to the adversaries of the city of God who belong to Babylon, who presume in their own strength and glory in themselves, not in the Lord, of whom are also the carnal Israelites, the earth-born inhabitants of the earthly Jerusalem, who, as saith the apostle, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is, which God, who alone is just, and the justifier, gives to man, and wishing to establish their own, that is, which is, as it were, procured by their own selves, not bestowed by him, are not subject to the righteousness of God, just because they are proud, and think they are able to please God with their own, not with that which is of God, who is the God of knowledge, and therefore also takes the oversight of consciences, there beholding the thoughts of men, that they are vain, if they are of men, and are not from him. And preparing, she says, his curious designs. What curious designs do we think these are, save that the proud must fall, and the humble rise? These curious designs she recounts, saying, The bow of the mighty is made weak, and the weak are girded with strength. The bow is made weak, that is, the intention of those who think themselves so powerful, that without the gift and help of God they are able by human sufficiency to fulfill the divine commandments, and those are girded with strength whose inward cry is, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. They that were full of bread, she says, are diminished, and the hungry have gone beyond the earth. Who are to be understood as full of bread, except those same who were as if mighty, that is, the Israelites, to whom were committed the oracles of God? But among that people the children of the bondmaid were diminished, by which word minus, although it is Latin, the idea is well expressed, that from being greater they were made less because even in the very bread, that is, the divine oracles, which the Israelites alone of all nations have received, they savour earthly things. But the nations to whom that law was not given, after they have come through the New Testament to these oracles, by thirsting much, have gone beyond the earth, because in them they have savoured not earthly but heavenly things. And the reason why this is done is as it were sought. For the barren, she says, hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. 
Here all that had been prophesied hath shone forth to those who understood the number seven, which signifies the perfection of the universal church. For which reason also the Apostle John writes to the seven churches, showing in that way that he writes to the totality of the one church. And in the Proverbs of Solomon it is said aforetime, prefiguring this, Wisdom hath builded her house, she hath strengthened her seven pillars. For the city of God was barren in all nations before that child arose whom we see. We also see that the temporal Jerusalem, who had many children, is now waxed feeble. Because whoever in her were sons of the free woman were her strength. But now, forasmuch as the letter is there, and not the spirit, having lost her strength, she is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He has killed her who had many children, and made this barren one alive, so that she has borne seven. Although it may be more suitably understood that he has made those same alive whom he has killed. For she, as it were, repeats that by adding, He bringeth down to hell, and bringeth up. To whom truly the apostle says, If ye be dead with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Therefore they are killed by the Lord in a salutary way, so that he adds, Savor things which are above, not things on the earth, so that these are they who hungering have passed beyond the earth. For ye are dead, he says, Behold how God savingly kills. Then there follows, And your life is hid with Christ in God. Behold how God makes the same alive. But does he bring them down to hell, and bring them up again? It is without controversy among believers that we best see both parts of this work fulfilled in him, to wit our head, with whom the apostle has said our life is hid in God. For when he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, in that way certainly he has killed him. And forasmuch as he raised him up again from the dead, he has made him alive again. And since his voice is acknowledged in the prophecy, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, he has brought him down to hell, and brought him up again. By this poverty of his we are made rich, for the Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. But that we may know what this is, let us hear what follows, He bringeth low, and lifteth up. And truly he humbles the proud, and exalts the humble which we also read elsewhere, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. This is the burden of the entire song of this woman whose name is interpreted His Grace. Farther, what is added, He raiseth up the poor from the earth, I understand of none better than of him who, as was said a little ago, was made poor for us when he was rich, that by his poverty we might be made rich. For he raised him from the earth so quickly that his flesh did not see corruption. Nor shall I divert from him what is added, and raiseth up the poor from the dunghill. For indeed he who is the poor man is also the beggar. But by the dunghill from which he is lifted up, we are with the greatest reason to understand the persecuting Jews, of whom the apostle says, when telling that when he belonged to them he persecuted the church, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, and I have counted them not only loss, but even dung, that I might win Christ. Therefore that poor one is raised up from the earth above all the rich, and that beggar is lifted up from that dunghill above all the wealthy, that he may sit among the mighty of the people, to whom he says, Ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. 
for these mighty ones had said, Lo, we have forsaken all and followed thee. They had most mightily vowed this vow. But whence do they receive this except from him of whom it is here immediately said, giving the vow to him that voweth? Otherwise they would be of those mighty ones whose bow is weakened. Giving, she saith, the vow to him that voweth. For no one could vow anything acceptable to God, unless he received from him that which he might vow. There follows, And he hath blessed the years of the just, to wit, that he may live for ever with him to whom it is said, And thy years shall have no end. For there the years abide, but here they pass away, yea, they perish. For before they come they are not, and when they shall have come, they shall not be, because they bring their own end with them. Now of these two, that is, giving the vow to him that voweth, and he hath blessed the years of the just, the one is what we do, the other what we receive. But this other is not received from God, the liberal giver, until he, the helper, himself has enabled us for the former. For man is not mighty in strength. The Lord shall make his adversary weak, to wit, him who envies the man that vows, and resists him, lest he should fulfill what he has vowed. Owing to the ambiguity of the Greek, it may also be understood his own adversary. For when God has begun to possess us, immediately he who had been our adversary becomes his, and is conquered by us, but not by our own strength, for man is not mighty in strength. Therefore the Lord shall make his own adversary weak, the Lord is holy, that he may be conquered by the saints, whom the Lord, the Holy of Holies, hath made saints. For this reason, let not the prudent glory in his prudence, and let not the mighty glory in his might, and let not the rich glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, to understand and know the Lord, and to do judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. He in no small measure understands and knows the Lord, who understands and knows that even this, that he can understand and know the Lord, is given to him by the Lord. For what hast thou, saith the apostle, that thou hast not received? But if thou hast received it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? That is, as if thou hadst of thine own self, whereof thou mightest glory. Now he does judgment and justice who lives aright. But he lives aright who yields obedience to God when he commands. The end of the commandment, that is, to which the commandment has reference, is charity out of a pure heart, and a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. Moreover, this charity, as the Apostle John testifies, is of God. Therefore to do justice and judgment is of God. But what is in the midst of the earth? For ought those who dwell in the ends of the earth not to do judgment and justice? Who would say so? Why then is it added, In the midst of the earth? For if this had not been added, and it had only been said, To do judgment and justice, this commandment would rather have pertained to both kinds of men, both those dwelling inland, and those on the sea-coast. But lest any one should think, that after the end of the life led in this body, there remains a time for doing judgment and justice, which he has not done while he was in the flesh, and that the divine judgment can thus be escaped, in the midst of the earth appears to me to be said of the time when every one lives in the body. For in this life every one carries about his own earth, which, on a man's dying, the common earth takes back, to be surely returned to him on his rising again. Therefore in the midst of the earth, that is, while our soul is shut up 
in this earthly body, judgment and justice are to be done, which shall be profitable for us hereafter, when every one shall receive according to that he hath done in the body, whether good or bad. For when the apostle there says in the body, he means in the time he has lived in the body. Yet if any one blaspheme with malicious mind and impious thought, without any member of his being employed in it, he shall not therefore be guiltless, because he has not done it with bodily motion, for he will have done it in that time which he has spent in the body. In the same way we may suitably understand what we read in the psalm, But God our King before the worlds hath wrought salvation in the midst of the earth so that the Lord Jesus may be understood to be our God who is before the worlds, because by him the worlds were made, working our salvation in the midst of the earth, for the word was made flesh, and dwelt in an earthly body. Then after Hannah has prophesied in these words, that he who glorieth ought to glory not in himself at all, but in the Lord, she says, on account of the retribution which is to come on the day of judgment, the Lord hath ascended into the heavens, and hath thundered, he shall judge the ends of the earth, for he is righteous. Throughout she holds to the order of the creed of Christians, for the Lord Christ has ascended into heaven, and is to come thence to judge the quick and dead. For, as saith the Apostle, Who hath ascended but he who hath also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Therefore he hath thundered through his clouds, which he hath filled with his Holy Spirit when he ascended up. Concerning which the bondmaid Jerusalem, that is, the unfruitful vineyard, is threatened in Isaiah the prophet, that they shall rain no showers upon her. But he shall judge the ends of the earth is spoken as if it had been said, even the extremes of the earth. For it does not mean that he shall not judge the other parts of the earth, who without doubt shall judge all men. But it is better to understand by the extremes of the earth the extremes of man, since those things shall not be judged which in the middle time are changed for the better or the worse, but the ending in which he shall be found who is judged. For which reason it is said, He that shall persevere even unto the end, the same shall be saved. He therefore who perseveringly does judgment and justice in the midst of the earth shall not be condemned when the extremes of the earth shall be judged. And giveth, she saith, strength to our kings, that he may not condemn them in judging. He giveth them strength, whereby as kings they rule the flesh, and conquer the world in him who hath poured out his blood for them and shall exalt the horn of his Christ. How shall Christ exalt the horn of his Christ? For he of whom it was said above, The Lord hath ascended into the heavens, meaning the Lord Christ, himself, as it is said here, shall exalt the horn of his Christ. Who therefore is the Christ of his Christ? Does it mean that he shall exalt the horn of each one of his believing people, as she says in the beginning of this hymn, Mine horn is exalted in my God? For we can rightly call all those Christs who are anointed with his chrism, forasmuch as the whole body with its head is one Christ. These things hath Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the holy and much-praised man, prophesied, in which indeed the change of the ancient priesthood was then figured, and is now fulfilled, since she that had many children is waxed feeble, that the baron who hath borne seven might have the new priesthood in Christ. End of Book 17, Chapters 1-4 through 4. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org